And I'm Sarah. And you're listening to Dead Cat on the Line, an internationally focused true crime podcast. Where two very anxious people overanalyze everything. Your cats were harmed in the making of this podcast. I had a cookie in the interim. And I'm just kind of like trying to swallow everything. Like stress swallowing. <laughs> like, oh no. Have you always noticed it's always when you take a bite of your food that the wait staff come over and are like, how is everything? And you're like, mm, great. Oh, absolutely. Great that always happens. <laughs> you just have to like nod and be like, it's good. <laughs> it's good. Like that white people thing where you do the thumbs up and you nod yeah. at the same time. Nod and thumbs up. <laughs> so much oh my god i do it i know i'm guilty i I want not i want to not be guilty well speaking of guilt (laughs) oh god oh god i'm going to talk about one of the most famous heists in u.s history yes and i haven't heard of it so yeah (laughs) it is literally the greatest known property theft in history um i believe of anywhere See, again, I don't know this, so this is, like, doubly exciting, because it's such a big, important case, and I'm just going to be there, like, I genuinely have never heard any of this before. Oh, it's so wild. I, like, brought it up at lunch with my coworkers the other day when we were talking about the podcast, and just went on this rant about what happened with this case, because it's so interesting to me. Um, I love it so much. Do you not find that with these cases, is, like, you end up like living in them for a little bit absolutely it becomes like your life and suddenly you're the expert on it and suddenly like someone else is trying to talk to like how are your day and you're like did you know this happened in this day and they're like mm? yeah <laughs> so this is the isabella stewart gardner museum heist and so it happened on march 18th 1990 in the early hours of that morning 13 works of art that are valued at a combined total of $500 million were stolen from the museum. Oh, boy. So I'm going to start by telling you guys like a little bit about the museum and about Isabella Stewart Gardner, because in researching for this case, I learned a lot about her, and she's probably one of my favorite people now. Just based on some of the descriptions you get of her. Oh, good. I'm ready. So, Isabel Stewart Gardner was born in New York City on April 14, 1840, to a wealthy linen merchant. Um, so, already starting out a little bit upper class here. Yeah, she, she, she's, um, she's, got it, she's got it going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when she was 16, she and her parents moved to Paris, where she attended a school for American girls. And it's here that one of her classmates introduced her to John Lowell Gardner, also known as Jack, whom she married in 1860, a few days before her 20th birthday. Oh, she's a baby. Yeah. So they, after they married, they settled in Boston, and Isabel became drawn 
into the intellectual life of the city, basically attending lectures and intellectual clubs and stuff. And um, on on like the advice or not advice, the suggestion of this Harvard professor that she came in contact with through these lectures and such, she actually began collecting rare books. This is where her collection begins, is with these this is, books. This is the gateway drug. It's the, yeah. <laughs> it's the I believe like some of her early acquisitions included copies of Dante's trilogy. Dante's Inferno, the trilogy. Yes, I um, completely forgot the name of Inferno, so I just said trilogy. That's fair. I was like, um, <laughs> I was like, is that? I was like, is that like the Lord of the Rings extended edition, but for like Dante? <laughs> Listen, I've read all three books, and I've read Inferno like three different times for different classes. I should remember the title. I did not. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie to you. That is three more times than I've ever read Dante's Inferno. So. <laughs> Kudos to you. It was for class, and they were all different translations, and you had to, like, use the actual wording in the translations in your work, so I was forced to read it. <laughs> so that sounds that sounds terrible. I won't lie to you. you. You sound like very... This was a very stressful period of your life. As an English major at my college, there were a lot of books that I read multiple times and now have a negative association with because of that. <laughs> I don't blame you. I had to take time away from the books I did my dissertation on. I can't look at you right now, I'm sorry, I just need some space. <laughs> no more. No more. Anyways, so, she began collecting rare books, which included Dante's Inferno and that whole trilogy. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were very happy for a period of time. They had a son, but unfortunately, he died of pneumonia just before turning two years old. Oh no! And Isabella also had a miscarriage not long afterwards. And so, on the advice of their doctor, Jack and Isabella actually began taking trips abroad, including to Venice, where they met Bernard Berenson. That's a name and a half. <laughs> yeah! So, Bernard Berenson, he's not really going to show up a lot, in the rest of this case, he's just, he's important because he later becomes Isabella's chief art advisor, and he helps her acquire, like, many of the masterpieces in her collection. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of what's in that museum today is because of Berenson. Okay. So, so yeah, we owe him. Yes. <laughs> so they spent a year abroad traveling around Europe. And Isabella started collecting some art pieces. And after about a year, they returned to Boston, where Isabella actually began establishing herself as a fashionable, high-spirited socialite. Oh, I love her. Uh, I love her yeah. so much. This, this is where I start, like, really loving her. Because she frequently was featured in, like, a lot of the Boston gossip columns. Yes. And they called her various names throughout her life, including Belle, Donna Isabella, Isabella of Boston, and Mrs. Jack. And, like, my favorite she thing... She has aliases! She has aliases! My favorite thing that I've read about her, actually, though, is at a 1912 concert, she appeared with a white headband emblazoned with O.U. Red Sox which was the baseball team at the time. 
This is a very fancy concert. So she turns up wearing sports gear to the fancy concert, basically. Yes. Yes. But like specific like hardcore sports fan sports gear. Like specifically the sports team of their city. But this is a a very fancy concert. And it's reported that this appearance, I quote, almost caused a panic. (laughs) Why almost a panic? It's just not something that people did. She was very eccentric for her time. I love her. This is why she appeared in the gossip column so much. It's for things like this. And her appearance at this concert is still one of her most well-known eccentricities of the time. Amazing. And there's a description of her which I found on the website for the museum that I just absolutely love. And it's from a Boston reporter. It says, Mrs. Jack Gardner is one of the seven wonders of Boston. There's nobody like her in any city in this country. She's a millionaire bohemian. She is the leader of the smart set, but she often leads where none dare follow. She imitates nobody. Everything she does is novel and original. I mean, he sounds... This is a, this is a dude that's written this, right? Yes. Like, he, he's so... He really, really wants to get into her pants. Like, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> But also, like, that was a completely really beautiful description, but I was like, oh, buddy, she's not going to call you back. I'm sorry. (laughs) Busy going where none dare follow. But I do love that description of her because I think it's absolutely true, just based on her eccentricities. And also, like, she opens an art museum and some of the details about how she does it is really cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in 1891... Isabella inherited $1.75 million from her father. Uh, Yeah. And she and Jack used it to become avid art collectors. Soon their collection grew too vast to fit in their house. They started looking at properties, like pieces of land, where they could build a house that could hold their art. Their plan... Their actual plan was to purchase a plot of land in the Fenway area of Boston to open an art museum. Okay, okay. They knew that they wanted to open a museum. However, before they were able to even purchase the land, Jack died of a stroke in 1898. So, it was Isabella alone who actually realized their shared dream of opening the museum. That's actually really sad. Yeah. So she she bought the plot of land in the Fenway area, and she had this big building built for the museum, which she modeled after 15th century Venetian palazzos. Oh. And she called it Fenway Court after the location where it was built. And what I found really cool in reading up on the whole, like, museum history is that when it was being built, she was very hands-on. Like, she would go to the construction site and be working with them, like, carrying wood. There's one instance where she actually was showing some of them how she wanted the stucco on the walls to look. So she she was actually doing it to show them what kind of look she wanted. 
Oh, wow. Okay, and what year is this? This is early 1900s, because oh, the, yeah. mu- the museum was finally open to the public in 1903. Okay, so like, this is not what nice young, nice young women do. No, this is very out of character for, for like, upper-class women. Oh, I love uh, her. I love her so much. I know. I love her, too. This is why I had to talk about this, because she was amazing. So, the museum was finally opened to the public in 1903. It houses a collection of more than 7,500 art pieces, including paintings and sculptures. That doesn't include the rare books that it houses as well. And among the artists represented in the museum are Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, Manet, Degas, and Matisse. Mm-hmm. So she had an amazing collection. I think it was like the most extensive and expensive art collection of anyone in America at that time. <laughs> I love her. I know I keep saying this like I'm like a stuck record. <laughs> yeah. And all of these, all these pieces of art are still in the museum because Isabella requested that when she died, her art collection remain permanently on display. That was a good move, I have to say. Yeah. So all the art pieces shown in the museum are her art collection. It's just her collection is in the museum. <laughs> and I just want to take this minute to kind of show you what this museum looks like. So in the drive, the first picture, Gardner Museum 1, that's the outside of the building. And I find it very, very unassuming looking like it's just a normal building, you know? My poor little computer is like wheezing. Okay, yeah, nope, I see it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Now look at the second picture. Oh, (laughs) Oh my god. That's the inside of the museum. That is the main courtyard at the museum Uh, and if you could try and describe it to our listeners okay so it has like glass roof like entirely like think like a greenhouse and then the rest of it really looks like it's like lifted from from italy like one of the i'm thinking of venice almost like the street streets Mm -hmm. of venice with like the very narrow windows and they're very the arched windows and there is green literally everywhere. There's like hanging plants yeah. and trees. It's so pretty. <laughs> it is. It's gorgeous. And part of the reason why it looks so Italian is because she and Jack actually collected columns and windows and pieces of architecture from Italy. Oh. And brought it over to America, which got used in this okay. construction. Well, it, it worked. Yeah, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Uh, And the Mm -hmm. third picture is just another view of the courtyard, and you can see a little bit more of the like bottom of it. Yeah, so pretty. Sorry again, I'm conscious that this episode I keep repeating like variations on how much I love her and how pretty things are, but like (laughs) I'm actually stunned. Like this is this is why I had to talk about her. I love her. She was honestly a visionary. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. but No, I, I would agree. But getting back to the case. So all of this art she collected during her lifetime, because it's permanently on display, mm-hmm. 
It's in the museum when, on March 18th, a red Dodge Daytona pulled up near the side entrance of the museum at around midnight. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say right here. I wouldn't. So like a Dodge Daytona is like a sports car, right? Mm-hmm. Who the hell goes and robs somewhere in a red <laughs> sports car? Yeah. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> I, I honestly don't know, but mm. that is the car they used. <laughs> so. Uh, The two men inside the car were dressed in fake police uniforms. Oh my god, of course. They waited inside the car for about an hour, and people think this is possibly to avoid drawing attention from people who were leaving a St. Patrick's Day party nearby. Yeah, big party weekend when they do this. Okay, so that actually... So the, the, the police uniforms actually make sense. Like, the fact that it's a party weekend is very important for how they get into the museum. Because at one twenty four a.m., they get out of the car, and one of them pushes the buzzer near the side entrance door. Okay. Richard Abbott, who is one of the two security guards on duty that night, he's, he's alone at the desk at this point in time because oh, the no. others the no. other security guard is making like the rounds in the museum and he's at the desk richard sweetie no so he's told by the two men that they were policemen who had heard of a disturbance in the courtyard of the museum and they asked to be let inside so abbeth was able to see the men through the security cameras so he was able to see they were in police uniform Mm-hmm. And believing them to be policemen due to that, he decided to kind of break protocol and buzz them in. When the men arrived at the security desk, one of them told Abbott he looked familiar and that there was a default warrant out for his arrest. So they had Abbott step away from behind the desk, which is where the only alarm button to alert the police was located. And they asked for his ID, had him face the wall, and then handcuffed him. So That's so simple, but so genius. Yeah. I'm actually a little bit angry. Yeah. <laughs> so Abbott believed that the arrest was just a misunderstanding, but then realized that he hadn't been frisked before being cuffed, which is standard protocol for police arrests. And he also realized that one of the men's mustache was made out of wax. Oh, 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 Richard. Richard. (laughs) Now is not the time to notice that. Yeah. The time was was before they handcuffed you. Yeah. It's gone now. The opportunity's gone. It's it's gone. It's out the window. (laughs) Yeah. So the other security guard returned to the desk soon after Abbott had been cuffed. And at that point, the two men also handcuffed him. And the other security guard asked why he was being arrested. I mean, I think that's a reasonable question. Yeah. It was at this point that the two men then revealed that they were not policemen, and this was not an arrest, and that this was instead a robbery. Surprise! 
Jesus. <laughs> so they took the two security guards down to the museum basement where they handcuffed them to the pipes and wrapped duct tape around their hands, feet, and their heads, like where their mouth is. Okay. And with the two guards tied up in the basement and away from cameras and all that, we don't know exactly what happened in the museum that night. But we do know a lot, because the museum's motion detectors were able to track the thieves' movements throughout the museum. Okay, so what's happened with the cameras again? Sorry, just one more time. Just like the two guards aren't able to like actually watch oh, the, the see, it's, And it's not like it's being taped, it's like it's a constant yeah. visual. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because they're, they're in the basement. Mm-hmm. God, can you imagine the conversation you'd have when you're both stuck in the basement? I mean, you wouldn't really have a conversation if you had duct tape over your mouth. Oh, it... sorry, I forgot the duct tape. <laughs> I forgot the duct tape. It'd be so, more of, like, a personal conversation. <laughs> like, like a si- silent contemplation. <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe I didn't notice the wax mustache before they handcuffed me. <laughs> the wax mustache kills me as a detail. <laughs> I know. Like... There's so many other ways you can have a mu- you can do a mustache, but no, no, it was wax. <laughs> it was wax. They were like, you know, what's gonna what's the what's the best option? Wax, wax. <laughs> I mean, they really only needed it to get into the museum and to keep from being recognized. So it okay, did its fair. job. Okay, okay, maybe I shouldn't be shouldn't be insulting <laughs> wax too much. It, it 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 did what it was meant to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so the motion detectors were able to track them in the museum. Mm -hmm. So what we know is that after confronting the guards, the motion detectors show that the thieves went up to what's called the Dutch Room, Mm -hmm. where they attempted to take Rembrandt's self-portrait. I say attempted because they weren't able to take the portrait out of the frame, and they ended up leaving the painting on the floor. Just, just, just leave it, Jim. Just, just yeah. screw it. Screw it. Yeah. After that problem, they then proceeded to cut Rembrandt's "The Storm of the Sea of Galilee" and a lady and gentleman in black out of their frames. Oof, that's a lot of damage. Them. They then removed Vermeer's "The Concert" and Flink's landscape with obelisk from their frames, so they actually took them out of the frames this time. Okay, so they could actually get those ones out. I love how when they came to the Rembrandts, they were like, "We're not going through this nonsense again." Yeah, <laughs> just, 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 just cut, just cut it, mate. Just, just they're like it. the first one didn't work, so we're not going to try again with his other ones. Yeah, it's like we, we, they don't believe in third time lucky. Yeah. <laughs> They also took a Chinese bronze goo from the Shang Dynasty from that room. A vase, essentially. A very fancy, expensive old vase. I love how they were like, that probably looks like it's worth something. Let's just nab that as well. Yeah. Well, I'll get back to that later. Okay, okay. In other areas of the museum, they also stole five Degas paintings, Mm -hmm. which is a personal offense to me because Degas is my favorite. Oh, I love Dagar, like, yeah. Not like, I love him. I'm I'm so upset they stole his paintings. <laughs> you were like, you were like, okay with the Rembrandt. Like, yeah, that's whatever. <laughs> but like, Dagar. Dagar, crime. Dagar, Honestly. Yeah. So now it's officially a crime. Continue. Now it's a crime. 
They also took an eagle finial from a Napoleonic flag. Mm-hmm. So from, like, the top of the pole, basically. Okay. They tried taking the flag itself, but weren't they weren't able to unscrew it from the wall. Oh my god. So they just took the eagle. It's like, I don't think that, it sounds like they didn't even do, like, because they clearly must have done some sort of reconnaissance to, like, yeah. know stuff. But I'm like, did you not get that far in your plan? I, I don't know. Uh, later they went to what's called the Blue Room, where they took Manesh's Tortoni. The curious part of this, though, is that the motion detectors show that the only footsteps in the Blue Room that night were at 12.27am and at 12.53am, which matched the times when Abbott said he was on patrol. Oh, that's weird. I don't like that. No, I do yeah. not like that. There. <laughs> and also, the frame for the painting was found on the security chief's chair near the front desk. I don't so. like it. Nope, I don't like it. Sorry. <laughs> so, the thieves were known to have made two trips to their car with the artwork during the theft, which lasted about 81 minutes. Before they left... They visited the tied-up security guards again. Of course they did. Of course. (laughs) And told them, I quote, You'll be hearing from us in about a year. What a very ominous, right? Yeah. What about, what a weirdly ominous and yet also very unexciting thing to say. (laughs) If I had the opportunity to, like, gloat over somebody I'd outwitted, I don't think that's what I would have come up with i don't think they rehearsed any of this they didn't rehearse what they were going to say in the mirror no. <laughs> like... well we're still not sure what they meant by that statement also because uh oh. the thieves were never heard from again <laughs> of course they were they're so bad at this it's like they've never seen a single heist they've never seen a single heist movie ever <laughs> So they they disappeared into the night, and they left the guards handcuffed when they left. So it wasn't until the police arrived at 8.15 that morning that the guards were released, and any of this got known. Can I just say, like, I realize that this is a very serious theft, but like, god, that'd be so unfortunate if you needed to pee. Yes. <laughs> and you're like, oh. I didn't so. even think about that, but yeah. <laughs> That's like eight hours without being able to go to the bathroom. That's not great. No. I'm no. not a fan of that. Not concept. really. So altogether, the stolen work amounts to around $500 million, like I said, making it the largest recorded private property theft in history. Yep, yep, that would, yep. That would do it. And because Isabella Stewart Gardner had intended for her collection to remain permanently on display the frames for the stolen artwork were never removed from the museum oh yeah so if you look at the fourth picture in the drive for this am i gonna be sad i'm gonna be sad aren't i a little bit oh no yeah so the frames hang empty on the walls of the museum and 
the museum itself, like on their website and all of this, they have a bunch of information about this. What they say is that these frames serve as placeholders for the art's potential return. So it's like a very hopeful thing for them is that the artwork will eventually be returned and will put them back in their frames. That is the, honestly one of the saddest things I've ever heard. I know, right? Like, I'm just looking at this this picture and it's just... Because it's beautiful, it's like silk patterned wallpaper. So mm. when I was like going through the drive trying to find the other two images, I passed to this picture and I just didn't even... I was like, oh, okay, it's just the inside because I didn't even look at the inside of the frame. But yeah, it's just completely blank. And you yeah. can like see the wallpaper through it. It's it's very sad, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just like imagine several of these just hanging throughout the museum. You're going through and suddenly yeah. there's an empty one. You're like, oh, that's where the stolen one was. Yeah. That's yeah. Like, oh, okay. There are like several other pictures that I found while doing research that show other mm -hmm. frames that were empty. Um, mm -hmm. Some in like a red room. And it's just very sad. Well, that's a downer. Yeah. So, in the aftermath, the FBI took control of this case under the reasoning that the artwork would likely cross state lines and so needed national jurisdiction. Yeah, I think that's fair. So far, they've conducted hundreds of interviews around the world. What they believe, as far as we know, is that the two thieves belong to a criminal organization no, based in the no mid-Atlantic and New England area. No, they've got an organization. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, I, it just makes me think of, like, the new Carmen San Diego TV show. Oh. <laughs> okay, sorry, continue. I totally interrupted that. So uh, they also believe that the stolen artwork was moved through Connecticut and Philadelphia in the years after the theft. Mm -hmm. So it went from state to state. In 2013, the FBI stated that it believed it knew the identities of the thieves. However, in 2015, they also said that the suspects were now deceased and they have declined to identify the individuals. Oh, come on. It's a little sad to me. Is that where you're like, they identify them, and I was like, and then you, I, I like perked up and you said, however, and I was like, oh, there's yeah. always a however. It's always a however. Yeah. My thought with that is that they think they knew who it was, and they were like actively pursuing these people, trying to actually pin it on them. Mm -hmm. And then they, the people died before they could. And so now, like, a lot of. A, a lot of their investigations slowed down so maybe it's like still an open investigation and so they're not gonna say who it is until they're like 100 percent certain yeah i feel like because i guess like with the criminal system it's in the u.s it's innocent until proven guilty and you can't yeah. technically defend yourself if you're yeah. dead like i imagine that's relatively difficult so, <laughs> just a bit <laughs> just a teeny bit was really puzzling to investigators and to me after reading this, mm -hmm. is um, the selection of artwork that was stolen from the museum. There were much more valuable artworks in this museum. Oh, okay. And the thieves even passed two Raphaels and a Botticelli painting on their way to the Napoleonic flag. And really, I feel like 
they didn't necessarily know a lot about yeah and in the museum it includes the rape of europa which Mm -hmm. is the museum's most valuable piece and not even that was stolen or even attempted to be stolen yeah it sounds like people who didn't know a lot actually about the actual artworks yeah well actually on on that note uh Due to the brutish way the robbery was conducted and, like, the collection of artworks, investigators believe that the thieves were amateur criminals rather than experts commissioned to steal particular works. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The wax moustache, I'm sorry. That's my evidence for that one, the wax (laughs) moustache. Yeah, but, I mean, because the criminals are amateurs... That then kind of raises the question of why this happened. Yeah, it does. Like, why did they break into this museum and steal a bunch of artwork, but not, like, the valuable artwork? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, what was the point? And investigators can't really answer that. The Um, Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) They have gone through thousands of pages of evidence that they've gathered and no single motive or pattern has emerged from it so they literally have no answer this is like yeah it's like hey do you know what i always thought would be super fun trying to rob an art gallery we should just do it for a laugh mate we should just do it (laughs) yeah it does kind of feel that way like Obviously, they did some recon because they knew how to get in, and they had some sort of plan, but then the pieces they stole? Why? Why those pieces? And what were you going to do with them? Yeah, again, because that was the thing that makes me think it's amateur. It makes me think that they saw significant names, Mm -hmm. and that's what they went off, and they didn't go off like the value of specific pieces. I think you're right about that. So, despite the fact that we don't really know who these guys are, we are aware of several potential perpetrators. Ooh, oh, okay. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So, the first one I'm going to mention is Boston gangster Robert Donati. Uh, he's been suggested to have been involved and was even seen at a nightclub with a sack of police uniforms shortly before the robbery. I mean, not suspicious at all. No. Suspicious no. At all. Unfortunately, Donati was murdered in 1991 as a result of ongoing gang wars, so it's impossible to get the truth from him now. Another person that is believed to have been involved is Hartford, Connecticut gangster Robert Gentile, also known as Bobby the Cook. I love these nicknames. Yeah. They will never get old to me. So, Bobby the Cook has also been suggested of involvement, or at least of knowing where the artwork is. In fact, the FBI went and searched his home and brought him in on separate charges just so they could interview him about the artworks. And Mm -hmm. this was as recent as May 2016. Okay, yeah. So, the... FBI have not been able to really pin this on him, and they haven't found any of the paintings as of yet. Well, cause uh, yeah, because he doesn't have them in his house. Yeah. So if he's a career criminal, I'd like to think he has slightly more sense. Yeah. 
Um, well, you would think, but you know what else they did find in his house? A sheet of paper listing what each of the stolen artworks might draw on the black market. You know what? Can I, can I just take back my earlier comment about him having sense? Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. I'd like to retract that. Um, I'd very much like to exclude my comment from this narrative. <laughs> yeah, so... That's that's pretty suspicious right there, you know? I was about to guess when you were like, what did he have? I was like, it's the, it's the vase. I bet he has the vase. If he has the vase, I'm going to scream. Um, yeah. But no, it was, it was somehow even stupider than the vase. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, in addition to that, the wife of one of Bobby the Cook's mob partners admitted that he was given two paintings by her husband before her husband's death. Well, so that's that's also pretty incriminating. Yep, yep, that, yeah. Yep, and that finally, yeah, finally, Bobby the Cook submitted to a lie detector in 2015, during which he denied any knowledge of the stolen pieces. He failed, didn't he? He failed. Tell me he failed. He failed. His result showed that there was a 0.1% chance he was being truthful. Yes! He failed. That's like failing with honors. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like, that's so, like, yeah. <laughs> that's like he's a valedictorian of failure. <laughs> like, yeah, so that's a that's a pretty convincing result right there. I feel like I should point out I know that polygraphs are no longer admissible in court. I get that you can cheat polygraphs, I get that they're unreliable, but also, but yeah. also how are you so. If, again, like, if you are a career criminal and you are live in a country where you are aware polygraphs get used yep. by your national investigative service, how are you so bad at this? Right? You really, really should have done better. You're the one who submitted to the lie detector test. You yeah, have you the have right to... not to. Yeah, you don't have to do it. Like, that's... Do you know what that is? That's arrogance. That's actually what that is. That's totally being like, I'm smarter and better than this yeah so that's the only explanation i can think of it is sheer arrogance yeah the thing is though that uh his lawyer according to his lawyer fbi agents are convinced that he has the stolen works or knows where they are but his lawyer insists that if he had the stolen artwork or knowledge of its whereabouts he would have turned it in for the reward money a long time ago Oh, there's reward. Oh, yeah, of course there'd be reward money. Yep. Okay, that's that's a fair statement, but also exactly what I would expect somebody who's a defense lawyer to say in this situation. Mm-hmm. Because do we know if the reward money is more than what the, the pieces separately would have gone for? Do you know what I mean? I'm like... I think it's more than what they separately would have gone for, but not what they would have gone for altogether. Or at least more than some of them separately. Yeah. Uh, so the current reward mm-hmm. for any information that leads directly to the recovery of all the museum's items in good condition mm-hmm. is 10 million dollars yeah okay no you know what? i probably would have handed that in as well i probably would have done yeah. that i was like oh how much can it even be and then you said that and i was like oh well yeah that that's an amount there's there's one other person uh who i don't think is very like connected to this case at all but there's another boston area gangster named lewis royce 
And he claims he is still owned fifth. He is still owed fifteen percent for devising the plan for two fake policemen to request access to the museum at night. Why on earth would you announce that? Exactly, which is why I don't think he was involved. I think he's just like trying to make it look like he was involved. Yeah, he wants like the the status of I came up with the idea that was pulled off. Mm-hmm. Cause, like, why would you just be like, yeah, I'm still owed this money from this thing? Yeah. It was incredibly criminal. Why would you just publicly be like, time to confess to that? Yep. So those are those are the people that we know of as now that may have been involved in some way. Personally, I think Bobby the Cook is the most likely. <laughs> oh. Like, Bobby the Cook is, um, I have a list, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's suspicious. A very, and maybe, maybe he was connected with Donati, the, the guy who was seen with the sack of police uniforms. Like, maybe there was a connection between their mobs regarding this. Like, maybe he organized it and set it into motion, and then they transported the artwork to Connecticut because I like FBI does believe that it moved through Connecticut. Okay. From Boston. I that, like playing devil's advocate for one second, like lots of criminals use the police thing, right? They use yeah. the police uniform. So there's no guarantee that it was used specifically for this case. But I feel like Bobby Oh, the, absolutely. Bobby the Cooks is stronger. Like it's more specifically linked. Yeah, I do, agree sh- I do agree it's shady. I think it's super shady. I know there is some other circumstantial evidence that mm-hmm. connects Donati to the theft. Okay. Um, Like, a couple of Boston mobsters at the time believed him to have been the most capable of pulling off the bl- burglary with mm-hmm. his experience. The thing is, it wasn't, it wasn't well done, though, was it? Yeah. <laughs> well, not- and he had also expressed interest in the napoleonic finial that got stolen oh okay okay that's yeah that like the napoleonic flag was literally directly opposite a michelangelo sketch which would have been much more valuable and easier to remove and like i know we we mentioned that a lot of criminals probably use the police uniform thing but that was like legitimately it was part of a ruse that he and another one of his mob members came up with years earlier. Ooh. So there's there's some circumstantial evidence connecting him, uh, specifically the Napoleonic finial thing. But and like the fact that that's like a ruse that he has used before regularly. Yeah. Yes. And so that he knows that it works. Okay. So I think it's possible that maybe he organized the robbery. Mm-hmm. He um, organized it, and then Bobby the Cock helped move stuff. Move the stuff, maybe sell the artwork, mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point in time, the FBI is more focused on like getting the artwork back, so they're, I believe they're focusing on Bobby the Cook and trying to get information on the whereabouts of the artwork from him. Is this not, though, one of the most useless self- serving purchases of all time if you buy one of those because it's not like you can even brag about it that much yeah incredibly famous 
you're literally buying it so that you don't even get to brag about it or show it to other people. You have to probably have it like sat in some tiny little room where yeah. you go and look at it occasionally and you feel self-satisfied and then you leave again. That's such a rubbish. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess if you're in the criminal underworld, you can brag to other criminals. Okay, you make a fair point there. And also, like, maybe they're just biding their time till people forget about this robbery. <laughs> like, it's one of the most, like, it's, you said it's the most significant property theft in the history of the United States. No one's going to forget. I don't know. I don't know why anyone would buy this stolen artwork based off of, like, the amount of investigation and publicity that's gone into it yeah it would be just i mean maybe i'm speaking as quite an anxious person but i would find that so stressful (laughs) stressful. but also like i said i'm an anxious person that also has a good healthy dose of catholic guilt from my childhood (laughs) so i'd be like yeah the point of the matter though is that this artwork has gone somewhere yes because so far none of it has been recovered absolutely none of it okay and despite like them searching bobby the cook's house and all that stuff they have not found any trace of its whereabouts so mm-hmm. I don't it's think obviously said- gone somewhere yeah it's it's somewhere like i said the museum is currently offering a reward of 10 million dollars for any information regarding recovery of these items and this is I know, just I, like I wish I wish I knew I wish I knew just because like, yeah I'd, I'd be down for getting the ten. They million. can use that ten mil for yeah. sure. I, I, I'm sure I could. It would be hard, you know, to spend it all, but I'm sure I could find some yeah. use for it. Like so, maybe. so listeners, if any of you have any of this stolen artwork, can you tell us? Let we us won't know. Tell any, we won't tell. We won't tell anyone. We won't connect you to it we can set up like a drop site and we'll get the the artwork to the museum millennials are ruining like millennials are out here just ruining the good old criminal enterprises that (laughs) their forefathers set up because we're just like we won't tell them your name we just we just want the money yeah we just want the money we just want the reward you know guys just just think how well i could tip like people for the rest of my life this economy is so bad guys i need to pay rent guys we need to pay rent we run a podcast (laughs) (laughs) clearly we're scraping the bottom of the barrel here not got enough dignity left to not stoop to this we could really use some help so if you know about this artwork let us know yes and we'll give you a, a shout out on <laughs> on the podcast i'm trying to I can't pretend to make that sound like it's a fair trade yeah <laughs> not that good of an actor uh, no so that's that final thoughts oh god right <laughs> final thoughts um you know where we are if you know where these paintings are <laughs> you know how to contact us we'll we'll leave we'll leave something in the description box i i i always feel like people act like art theft is a victimless crime and like i get that like it's it sort of is but i feel like it's sad that people think it's okay to like deny people artwork like like i'm like that's the yeah. whole concept of 
like art galleries is so that people who otherwise previously wouldn't have been able to ever see these paintings can go and yeah. see them. And I just feel like it takes away from like this. I kind of sound really, I sound really like traditional and old fashioned right now, but I'm like, this is like a community thing. Like, no, I absolutely agree. Because like, I would never. 50, 60 years ago probably have ever been able to see like a Degas painting in person. It just never would have happened because yeah. like I just wouldn't have had the, the finance. All those would have been in like private collections. Exactly. Whereas now because of public collections we get to see so much and I know like museums within like museums and art galleries is an issue about like public and private collect like with public collections about who actually owns them and how do we trace ownership um Mm -hmm. because there's a case i want to do in the future about that but i think people always think like oh this is a case where nobody got hurt and i'm like well people did they got yeah they got robbed of the opportunity to see these artworks Mm -hmm. and also like i don't know like those those empty frames are really sad like <laughs> they're so sad guys <laughs> they're really poignant like i saw it and i was like, like i felt like somebody like kicked me in the chest it's i was like so oh, okay. sad so yeah uh, that's probably yeah. my final thought is like this isn't actually a victimless crime but also like this is a really serious thing like because i know that uh, there's a lot of cases where this happens uh, particularly in the u.s if somebody comes to you and says they're a police officer, do not immediately believe them. Ask to see their ID. I don't know actually what the procedure that's advised in the US is, but like, don't just believe people at face value. It would be nice mm-hmm. if you could. But... Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> stuff Unfortun- like this can happen. <laughs> Unfortunately, in this cruel, bleak world, you cannot trust anyone. So... <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately... In this world, you may be facing a fake officer with a wax mustache. I'm genuinely concerned about how you figure, how you make a wax mustache. So, if, okay, if anybody <laughs> else, so also, if anybody knows how you make a wax mustache, can you can you message us? Because I would like to know. <laughs> I have a personal investment in this whole mustache affair. So please, again, I, I can bribe you with a shout out on the podcast where I will explain the wax mustache. Thing. <laughs> I'm just very concerned about this. We are very concerned about this. <laughs> like, never mind, never mind the theft of a couple of Rembrandts when, like, the real crime was the Max mustache. Honestly, I felt like it just. And how did it attach? Like, how did it stay on? I have so many questions. Oh no! Like, okay. Anyway, that was fun. <laughs> that was fun. Thank you, guys. For listening as always um we super appreciate it and we look forward to seeing you next episode <laughs> bye bye dead cat on the line is written and produced by ali drain and sarah caulfield sound editing is done by ruth brown For more information, you can find us at Dead Cat Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. No cats were harmed in the making of this podcast. We even have a real live one. You can see him on our social media pages. Thanks for listening.